Amen. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O oh, great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. That's our prayer. Glorify your name through us. And the way that he's going to do that is he's going to transform us by his glory. 2 Corinthians 3 tells us that by his glory, by seeing and beholding and savoring his glory, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. So that's what we are attempting to do. Every time we gather together, we want to see Jesus' glory clearly in the scriptures. And by beholding his glory, we'll be transformed. By being amazed at our Savior, our great God, will be transformed. We're doing that this summer through looking at the miracles of Jesus. We've been saying often that when Jesus does one thing, he's doing a billion things. Miracles are no different. When he does a miracle, he's teaching, he's preaching, he's giving object lessons, he's making analogies, he's pointing us to greater realities, he's loving the lost, he's helping those who are hurting, he's reversing the curse, and he's shining forth his glory. We saw that two weeks ago when we started our series in Mark chapter 2 with the paralyzed man dropped through the roof by his friends. And we saw explicitly the reason why Jesus does miracles. He said to the Pharisees, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say to this man on this bed, pick up your pallet and walk. So Jesus does every miracle that he does to prove to us that the claims that he's making about himself are true, to validate the claims that he's making about himself. And again, we said that with every miracle that you see in the Bible. I saw this again in uh, Exodus. I'm reading through Exodus. I started again in Genesis and read through Genesis a couple weeks ago, and I'm reading through Exodus right now. And when Moses says, how am I supposed to go before Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh that uh, you want us to, you want him to let his people go, your people go, how am I supposed to do that? And God tells Moses, throw down your staff, put your hand in your cloak, pull it out, leprosy, staff becomes a serpent. And he specifically says, all of these things are going to confirm the message that it's coming from me. So Jesus is doing miracles for the same purpose. Now, when he does one thing, he's doing a billion things. So even with Mark chapter 2, we saw Jesus kindly pressing into the paralytic's deepest need. The paralyzed man says, I just want to be uh, able to walk. That's why I'm here. And Jesus, the first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven. I'm going to go after your greatest need, which is what we looked at in Family Bible Hour this morning. The second miracle that we looked at was last week, Jesus calming the storm in Mark chapter 4 again proving that he's God, and also we spend a lot of time looking at what suffering looks like, that in the midst of suffering, we, like the disciples, say, God, do you even care that I'm perishing? You must not care, or else you wouldn't allow me to go through what I'm going through. And we talked about that biblically on Wednesday night, why God allows purposes, ordains plans, suffering for all of us to walk through as his children. But both of those miracles clearly identify Jesus as God. Only God can forgive sins, Jesus forgives sins. Jesus must be God. Only God can control and command nature. Jesus controls and commands nature. Jesus must be God. His power is being displayed in all of these miracles, and today, this morning, is no different. Today, we're going to look at Mark chapter 5, where Jesus' power continues to be displayed. In fact, there are many powers that are on display, four to be exact, in this account. There's the power of demons, the power of deity, the power of depravity, and the power of delight. And we're going to look at those as we go through this narrative. 
But as we go through, I want to make sure that as we stare at each specific aspect of power, that we would be blown away. This is a real account. This truly happened, and we would be blown away by the glory of our God on display. So let's read it together. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had gotten out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. This man had his dwelling among the tombs. No one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. Because Jesus had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, because we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly, not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain, and the demons implored Jesus, saying, send us into the swine, so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and 2,000 of them were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very same man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore Jesus to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. But Jesus did not let him, but said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And the man went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. Father, we ask that we would have fresh amazement this morning as we see Jesus on display. Jesus, we want to see your glory. We want to savor your goodness. We want your kindness, as demonstrated in this account and in our lives, to lead us to repentance. And we want to do exactly what you told this man to do, to go and report what great things the Lord has done for us. That will be an easy thing for us to do when we are freshly amazed at what great things you've done. So may we see ourselves even in this account. May we go back. Holy Spirit, give us sanctified imagination to go back and not just see these as words on a page and a text and somehow academic. May we go back and smell the smells and see the sights and hear and experience and feel the emotions that are taking place. God, may we never remain unaffected as we gather to hear your word proclaimed. 
Father, I know that the things that I desire for our church are impossible by my words alone. I desire that we would grow in our love for you, and that's not possible through human reasoning. That's only possible by the Spirit. Father, I desire that we would become even greater uh, passionate in our evangelism, have a greater passion in our evangelism, go out into the world and see every single person as a soul that either knows you and needs help growing in godliness or doesn't know you and needs to be introduced to the God of the universe. But our passion for evangelism is not something I can produce. None of these things are things that any human can produce. What I am wanting, what I am asking is impossible on my own strength. So I give to you our time. I give to you the, the loaves and fish that I have prepared and I ask you to multiply it by your Holy Spirit so that your Holy Spirit would accomplish in our presence, in our midst this morning, what is impossible apart from his working. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law that we would not remain unaffected but be changed. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. First, we are going to see in verses 1 through 5, power of the demons. We are in verse 1. They came, the disciples and Jesus, right after Mark chapter 4. Obviously, we are uh, just done with the calming of the storm. We have made our way to the other side of the sea in the country of the Gerasenes. This is the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And right off the bat, we have to address one issue that becomes a sticky issue uh, for people that don't want to believe that the Bible is true. And that issue is the name Gerasenes. Gerasenes, in Matthew 8, this parallel account, the word is Gadarenes. In Luke 8, it's Gerasenes, but there's also a mention of the city of Gadara. So some people say, see, uh, the Bible contradicts itself. I can't trust the Bible. And here's where I just, I want to inform you so that you can simply go to other people, number one, to yourself, and say, no, no, the Bible makes total sense. It's not contradicting itself. But if somebody were to raise that issue with you, you could show them. So there are different names that are given, but there's different names because they're talking about different things. On the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, there is a town. It's, a, it's an area called Gerasa. There's a very specific city that you can go to today called Gadara, and the whole region, which is what Mark is looking at, the country is called the Gerasenes. So they're all talking about the exact same place as far as the location. They're just using specific uh, places, specific terminology. It would be like me saying, I live in Northridge, I live in, San in the San Fernando Valley, and I live in Los Angeles. All three of those are true. They're not contradicting. They're just specifying. So Mark says that. Mark says that they came to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, it's the country of the Gerasenes. Now, the reason why you need to know that it's the country of the Gerasenes is not just for location, but because this is a very Gentile location. This is a Gentile city and country. This is, as we read in verse 20, the region of the Decapolis. Decapolis is 10 cities in the Greek. It's a very Gentile location. Jewish people aren't there. Not only do we know that from the, the word Decapolis, but we also know that from what they're doing. They're raising pigs. Jewish people aren't going to be raising pigs and herding pigs. So they come to the other side of the sea from Capernaum. They got blown over to the other side on the eastern side of the country of the Gerasenes. Now, they're safe 
on land. Imagine the disciples after the storm. Imagine the disciples as they go up onto the shore. This is where I just, I think sanctified imagination is so helpful. Put yourself in their sandals and listen to them talking to each other. Just imagine Peter saying, man, that was awful. (laughs) What we just experienced last night, I thought we were going to die. We didn't die. That's amazing that we didn't die. And you know what? I don't think that there's anything that can happen today that can be as terrifying as what happened last night. He's going to be proven wrong. I, I, I see Andrew. I don't know why, but Andrew always in my mind has always just taken the character of Smee from Peter Pan. <laughs> I see Andrew just in the boat, pulling, pulling them to shore, and in the boat saying, that was awful. I'm an experienced sailor. I'm an experienced fisherman, and that was awful. I don't think, I can just see him, like in the boat, saying, I don't think I'm ever ever going to get into a boat again. In fact, and he starts to take a step over, I am never going to get in this boat ever again. I'm staying on land. And as he says that, he says a man, two men actually, naked, running from the tombs, blood everywhere, screaming, and he goes, you know what? I'm getting back (laughs) in the boat. I think land would be a terrifying place to stay. Let's push off. The boat is safer. They just, I mean, they have to be thinking, we can never catch a break. Like, hanging with Jesus is terrifying. What should we do? We see, verse 2, what happens? What do they see? When Jesus got out of the boat, immediately, a man, Mark tells us one man, or literally it's a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit, met him. Again, discrepancy. Matthew tells us that there's two men. Mark and Luke only tell us that there's one. And, And again, very specifically, they don't say only one man. They just say a man. So they're not saying only one and not two. They're giving allowance for two. But again, people would say, oh, there's a discrepancy. You can't believe the Bible. I actually think this one's really easy to figure out. So Matthew tells us there's two. And if you remember, Matthew is in the boat, right? He is an eyewitness disciple. Mark, he's not a disciple as far as the 12 are concerned. He's getting his information from Peter. And Luke is not a disciple. He's getting his information from other sources. So the eyewitness account is Matthew. And he says, there were two guys, they were running towards us. And Peter, let's just consider Peter. Mark says, okay, he has a pen and paper. Okay, tell us what happened that day. And Peter says, well, we had finished the storm. It was terrifying. I thought we were going to die. We didn't die. God was gracious to us. And then when we got to the shore, there was this guy that came speaking and yelling at Jesus. So Mark just takes that down. Maybe Peter even says, there were actually two of them but one of them was the spokesperson. He was the guy that was super loud. He was the guy talking. And Mark writes down two people. "Eh, We don't need to worry about that. But what happened with the one guy? Luke's doing the same thing. He's just saying, okay, let's take maybe the more vocal of the two, the more prominent. Maybe one just shows up and bows down. The other one kind of stays in the cave, stays in the background. Maybe it's a reference specifically to the one man who goes back to the Decapolis and obeys what Jesus has asked him to do. But there's no reason to say, see, Matthew says two, Mark and Luke say one. And again, they don't say just one. They say a man. So there's an allowance for another one being there. There's just a man running up to Jesus and speaking to him. Not both of them talking, just one. So no discrepancy, no contradiction. They work together. They're synoptic. They, they see. Synoptic just literally means optic, seen, sin, like synonymous, the same. It, they're seeing the same thing, but from different vantage points. And Matthew obviously has the closest vantage point because he was there. So this man runs from the tombs. 
two men are running. And what's the description of these men? They had their dwelling among the tombs. So twice, verse 2 and verse 3, we are told they're from the tombs. No one's able to bind them, even with a chain. They'd often been bound with shackles and chains. The chains had been torn apart, shackles broken into pieces, so immense strength, no one's strong enough to subdue him. Nobody's able to bind him. That's emphatic negative in the Greek text. So literally, it would be no one at all, not anyone was able to bind him at all. This has never happened. It's not working. Verse 5, constantly, and if it wasn't enough to say constantly, Mark says night and day. So this is happening 24-7. They're screaming among the tombs. Now, they're right next to the, the city of Gadara. They're right next to this town. I have a hard enough time falling asleep when there's dogs barking in my neighborhood. Can you imagine what it's like to try and fall asleep when two men are screaming, demon-possessed men, terrified out of their minds, screaming? Not a happy kid scream, yay, we're on a swing set, keep pushing us. This is a supernatural, supernatural darkness. This is a demonic, terrifying scream. He's gashing himself, verse 5, the end of verse 5, cutting themselves with stones. Why? Why is he cutting himself? I think maybe two reasons from the demonic side of things. Demons just want to destroy life. They hate life. They want to kill anything that they can kill. So just trying to kill. Maybe the demons are trying to kill this individual. Remember uh, when Jesus comes back for the Mount of Transfiguration and he shows up and the ten disciples um, or the nine disciples are all hanging out trying to cast out a demon from a little boy and the boy's father tells of the demon possession and how it's happened and, and how the demon tries to throw the boy into the fire, tries to kill the boy. So I think from the demon possession side of things, they just want him dead. They want this man dead. They want these two men dead. So he's bloodied, he's bleeding. Matthew tells us they're naked. They're running with no clothing on. I think the second reason why they're gashing themselves with stones, maybe in their lucid moments, if they have any, maybe they're saying there's something terrible inside of me and I want to get it out and I don't know how to get it out. Kind of like we talked about with Eustace trying to um, rip off the dragon skin in C.S. Lewis's uh, Lion, the Witch, or Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Shutter. Maybe he's trying to, they're trying to get this demon out. Is there a way to try and get the demon out? But whatever the reason, two individuals run at lightning speed immediately when Jesus gets out of the boat, and this is a summary of what they look like. They live among the tombs. They have no clothes. They're incredibly strong. They're screaming. They're bleeding. And they're going to interact with the Savior. I just, what would this be like? We often pick on, you know, Peter and Andrew. What, what, what about some of those other disciples that we don't really mention? Are, are they saying, you know, what, I'm going to pull a Jesus on this one and just go to sleep in the boat. I'm, I'm, I'm out. What are, what are they doing? What are they thinking? What's going to happen? Well, the power of the demons is going to be overshadowed and overpowered by the power of deity. Verses 6 to 13. Seeing Jesus from a distance... The individual ran up and bowed down before him. So we have two. This is probably where they split because one's going to do the talking. One's going to hang back in the shadows. 
And this man bows down before Jesus. Bows down. Very, very specific Greek word, proskuneo. For those of you who have been with us at our church for a while, you know that that word means to worship in submission. I give myself to somebody else. So most often in the New Testament, it's actually translated as worship, fell down and worshiped. I don't think these demons are worshiping Jesus the, the way that we would, but there's an aspect of what they're doing that involves submission. They know they have no autonomy. They know that they have no authority. And so they fall down before him. They know who he is. They're going to say that. What business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God, I implore you by God, do not torment me. So they know who this man is. So they bow down. They're shouting. These demons are shouting through this individual with a loud voice. And they ask a question. Verse 7, what business do we have with each other? What business do we have with each other? That's a very strangely worded question. There's one other time that that's used in the Gospels, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, and there's one other time that that's used outside of the Gospel of Mark, and that's the Gospel of John, and it's in John chapter 2 when Jesus says to Mary, his mother, who's asking him to uh, turn water into wine, do something, make, do a miracle, make a miracle happen, do something because we've run out of wine. Jesus says to her, woman, what business do we have with each other? The exact same words, exact same phrasing. So it, it helps us to identify what the demons are saying because we know what Jesus was saying in John 2. And it also helps us to go back, we're going to try and tie these all together, but to go back in Matthew in the parallel account, Matthew records them as saying, have you come to torment us before the time? And Luke has them saying, do not send us into the abyss. So what is Mark saying when he's remembering through Peter, what business do we have with each other? What business do we have with each other? Here's what they're saying. We have business. We have a relationship. But this isn't the kind of relationship I thought we had right now. Remember, that's what John, John's recording for us in John chapter 2. Jesus is saying to his mom, we have a relationship, but this isn't the kind of relationship we have anymore. We had a relationship where you told me what to do, and now I'm waiting on my father to tell me what to do. Our relationship is different. The demons are asking the same thing, and here's what they're thinking. Jesus you can't send us into the abyss, into the pit, into hell. You can't judge us for all of eternity now. We know that time's coming, but we also know that you've allotted us time now to be able to have free reign on the earth as far as you give it to us. And you're cutting that short if you send us into the abyss now. You promise that we're going to have time. Our judgment isn't now, is it? That's their question. What business? Wait, hang on. You're allowing us to have free reign around the earth. This world is controlled by the prince of the power of darkness. He owns the world until Jesus at the end of time will come back and say, no, it's mine. But until that, what business do we have? Notice they say in Mark and in Matthew and Luke, don't send us to the abyss. If you're going to exercise us out of this man, leave us here. We don't want to go back to hell. How many people think that hell is a place where Satan is the innkeeper and the demons are helping him out and they're enjoying every minute of it. They're just, you know, with pitchforks, poking people. They're enjoying tormenting people. No, demons, biblically, hell was created, the Bible says, for 
Satan and all of his angels, his demons. And demons specifically, explicitly say, we don't want to go there. Please don't send us there. We know we're going there ultimately, but don't send us there now. Demons don't want to go to hell. It's a terrifying place. And Satan is not the captain of hell. He is the chief captive in hell, along with all of his demons. So they say, what, what business? Are you sending us out? Don't send us away. You can't do that. What business? Don't torment us, end of verse 7. Don't torment me. Don't send me to the abyss, Luke says. Don't torment us before the time. Don't judge us before the time, Matthew says. Now, why do they say that? Verse 8, because, they speak those words, because Jesus had been saying to them, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Come out of the man. So come out of the man. No, 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 don't send us to hell. Come out of the man. No, don't torment us. Come out of the man. This isn't just a moment. This is moments happening. And Jesus says, what is your name? Verse 9, and the demon said to him, my name is Legion because we are many. Legion is the largest unit of a Roman army between 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers. So on the high end, 6,000. Does that mean that there are 6,000 demons inside this man? I don't think it has to. It just means there are a lot of them in this man. And that's exactly what Mark tells us. My name is Legion because we are many. There's just a lot of us. Verse 10, he began to implore him earnestly, don't send me out of the country back to hell. Don't send me out of the country back to hell. Leave me here. I don't want to go to the abyss. So there's a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. And the demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus, and you can mark this in your Bibles if you underline in your Bible, gave them permission. Demons can't do a thing without God allowing them to do it and permitting them to do it. Go back to the book of Job, right? Satan says, I want to do these things. And God says, go this far and no further. Or go to Jesus talking to Peter. Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. He has to ask permission. And I will give him a, an amount of permission, but no further. Demons, Satan, none of them are autonomous. They're all on a leash, on a chain, unable to do anything on their own power. They just want to destroy and so they say, send us into the pigs that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission, allows them to do that. And coming out, verse 13, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. They just, demons just want to destroy. They just hate life and want to kill, whether it's a human life or a pig's life. Now again, you're a disciple. You're watching this unfold, maybe hiding just with your eyes, kind of looking over the, the bow of the ship. What's happening here? Maybe we should just back off and let Jesus handle this, and then we'll row back to shore once it's done. What are you thinking as this is happening? They're seeing immense power on display. They've seen the power of demons that terrifies them, and now they see the power of deity. With just a word, Jesus commands the demons to do exactly what he's wanting them to do. Leave these men and go into the pigs. Verse 14, we see the power of depravity. We've seen the power of demons, power of deity. We see the power of depravity. And it's a very interesting heading because it's a very interesting section. Every time I read this, I just scratch my head. 
Verse 14, the herdsmen run away and they report in the city and in the country. There were two demon-possessed men. You guys know about them. I mean, just think of how well-known these two men must have been. Uh, if you travel to a hotel in Gadara and you spend the night and you hear screaming, two men just screaming at the top of their lungs, and you go to the hotel manager and say, are you hearing this? Can you do something about that? And the hotel manager says, yeah, I'm sorry. That's it's Bill and Joe. They've been demon-possessed. Bad things have happened to them. They're living in the tombs. That's Bill and Joe. Everybody knows Bill and Joe. Everybody knows because they're hearing the screaming. The whole town knows. And so they hear, Bill and Joe, no more demons. And so they come. Wait, we need to see this for ourselves. They came to see what happened. Verse 15, they came to Jesus and observed the man. Now, again, Matthew's going to tell us both of them at this point are sitting there, but Mark's honing in on the man who had done the talking, the spokesperson for these two men. Observed him who had been demon-possessed sitting down. So what had he been doing? Day and night, screaming, running around, gashing himself with stones. And now he's at peace. He's sitting down. He had been naked, and now he's clothed. He had been out of his mind, and now he is in his right mind. This is the very man who had the legion. Now, what would we expect the country to do at this point? The whole countryside is there. They're looking at these two men. They see they're at peace. They're safe. The demons are gone. Our whole country can go back to life as usual. What would we expect them? They rejoiced with happiness. They gave hugs. But instead, verse 15 says, they became frightened. They became frightened. And not just that. That's kind of strange. But verse 16, those who had seen it described it to them, how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore, to beg, to plead Jesus to leave their region. So not only are they terrified, but they want Jesus to leave. They say, please get out of here. Now just picture this scene. Come see Bill and Joe. You've got to see Bill and Joe. You've got to see what's happened to them. You walk up, you see a crowd, you see the disciples, you see Jesus, and you see two men sitting down clothed. There is nothing scary at all about this scene. In fact, this is probably the first time that Peter and Andrew in a while are going, whew, like things are back to normal. Maybe we can get out of the boat. Maybe we can sit down. What's terrifying about what's happening here? Why do they become frightened? Well, I think the reason that they become frightened is the exact same reason the disciples became frightened last week after the storm had been calmed. Remember, they were afraid when the storm was happening, and then when it's calm, they became very much afraid. They are terrified. These townspeople are terrified of this demon-possessed man. These two men and the demons that are possessing them, they're terrified of these men. And then here's this guy, nice Jewish man, shows up on the beach and says, be gone. And instantly they're gone. When what you are afraid of is controlled by someone else, now you become afraid of that person. They know that Jesus' power is unmanageable, uncontrollable. If the demons had that much power to be able to do what they're doing with these two men, how much more power does Jesus have to have to be able to say, go? And they have to ask permission, and he owns and controls them. I think that's the main reason why they're afraid. But why would they ask him to leave? 
think number one, because they're afraid of his power. This is uncontrollable. This is unmanageable. What are you going to do? How do we know you're not going to hurt us? But I think there's a second thing, and it's in verse 16. Those who described it to them and how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. So they say, demon-possessed man, they tell them the whole countryside about that, and they say, we want you to leave. Because if you have the power that you have to control demons, you have more power than they do, and we were terrified of their power, and please leave. But I think when you add all about the swine, you add something interesting to the mix, because now... They want him to leave, not just because they're afraid of his power. They, they know, they've seen that his power to let these demons go into the pigs has now destroyed their economy. 2,000 pigs dead. If I can say it this way, I believe that their love for money, their money, their riches, their security is greater than their love for Jesus. They're looking, going, well, he can keep our region safe from demons. And he just destroyed our livelihood. Which is better? Do we want security from demons or do we want income? And they make a choice. We'd rather have income. And this, brothers and sisters, this is the epitome of idolatry on display. When love for something other than Jesus crowds out your soul and displaces him as your greatest treasure. This is Jeremiah 2 that we went through this morning in Family Bible Hour, forsaking the fountain of living water and running to broken cisterns that can't satisfy, that cannot even hold water. And as we say often at our church, sin makes you stupid. Look at the stupidity on display in these people. Look at how ludicrous their decision is. They would rather be filthy rich, and I don't know if pig raising is a filthy rich lucrative business, so let's just say they have money. They would rather be having money, having an income, while being susceptible to demonic attack at any time without their being able to do anything about it. They'd rather have that than have Jesus with them and be poor. The reality is if you have the one who commands the wind and the waves with you, the one who commands supernatural forces with you, you have somebody who can take care of your poverty. But they say, you know what, this doesn't add up. We would like you to leave, please. They're begging him. They're imploring him. Please leave. Get out of here. Why? Because they cannot see that he is their greatest treasure. They don't know that. They don't see that. They see him as an obstacle to their greatest treasure. Thanks for just destroying our economy. Now please leave. Oh, that we would be people that would do the exact opposite. No matter what it costs, no matter what I lose, if I gain Jesus, I have everything I need, and there's nothing I will be lacking. That's Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. Not, there aren't desires that I have that go unmet. We have that all the time. But there is not a need that I have that he won't provide. So depravity is on display. As they say to the God of the universe, please leave. We don't want you here. And so he does as they ask. He is... He who commanded demons is now being commanded by humans. Verse 18 shows us the opposite side of this equation, and it's the power of delight. We have the power of depravity seen in these townspeople, but we have the power of delight seen in these men, specifically this one who asks to go with him. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him. So the exact same word that was used about these townspeople begging Jesus to leave, this man is begging Jesus to stay. I want to accompany you, he says. 
He's begging him to accompany him. Maybe it's, can I be your disciple? Maybe it's, can I just, wherever you are, I want to be. Why would he be saying this? I think very practically he'd be saying this because I think he's asking the question that you and I are asking as we read this text. Jesus, what happens if the demons come back? I don't want to leave your side because if those demons come back and you're not with me, I'm going to die. But if those demons come back and you're with me, they won't even be able to possess me. I don't want to leave your side. Jesus, you didn't even know who I was. I had never been introduced to you formally. I had never shook your hand and told you my name, and you loved me enough to cast out these demons and care for me in my darkest hour. A kindness of God leads us to repentance. We love him because he first loved us. Please let me go with you. Now, what do you expect Jesus' response to be? Of course, join the crew, as many disciples as possible. Come on, we need to grow this band. What does he say? I think verse 19, one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Every time I read this verse, my heart is so grieved for this man. Jesus did not let him. And we don't know how that conversation happened. We know that this man's imploring Jesus, please let me go, please let me go. And I don't think that Jesus is cold or callous. I don't think it's no, step away from the boat. But there is some acknowledgement of, I'm sorry you can't be with us. Now, how would you hear that if you were this man? Probably like the disciples the night before. Do you not care that I'm perishing? You leave me susceptible to demonic attack? You're not going to let me go with you? It's the way I would hear it. And that's why I need a Savior. Because ears of faith and a heart of faith will hear Jesus' hard words. He says hard words, but a heart of faith will hear Jesus' hard words as words of love. And when Jesus says, you can't come with me, that's not Jesus being unloving. Jesus says to us many times, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't go here. And that's Jesus loving us. And he tells him, go home to your people, report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And the way that we know that this man is hearing with ears of faith and a heart of faith is that this man does just that. Verse 20, he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. If you go to chapter 7, Mark chapter 7, verse 31, you will see when they come to the region of the Decapolis, they went out from the region of Tyre, came to Sidon, to the Sea of Galilee within the region of the Decapolis. This is the second time they're coming back to the region of the Decapolis. And people are bringing a deaf man. People are bringing uh, people who have sicknesses, diseases. And then verse 1 of chapter 8, in those days when there was again a large crowd that forms in Decapolis. Why is there a large crowd? Why are people meeting Jesus on the shore to say, I want this man to be healed? Why? Because this man has done his job. This demon-possessed man, who was demon-possessed no more, went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis region what great things the Lord has done. Imagine those conversations. Hey, did you ever hear of Bill and Joe? Did you ever hear of them? Oh, yeah, those guys that terrifying, screaming day and night. Yeah, I'm Bill. 
And I want to tell you what Jesus did for me. Maybe I still have scars from gashing myself. I want to show you what Jesus did for me. Going back to your family, who's practically disowned you, live out among the tombs where death reigns. And he comes back and he says, Mom, Dad, I'm in my right mind. He says what great things the Lord has done, and his ministry takes effect. It takes off. And everyone's amazed, as they should be, when they hear the account of God's amazing grace. What do we do with this account for us today? Obviously, I think we sit in amazement just like these people. But I think the way that we can be freshly amazed and the way that we need to press deeper into this account is realize that this is our story, is it not? This is our story. These men were living in the tombs. You and I weren't even living in the tombs. We were dead in the tombs, right? Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses and sins. Before a conversion, we were all dead in trespasses and sins. We were destroyed by the power of sin. We were held captive in darkness. We were in bondage to sin. But today, after conversion, we can confidently say that he has rescued us from the domain of darkness. Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light because he rescued us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Ephesians 5, 8, we formerly walked in darkness, but now we walk as children of light. This is our story. We have been rescued. We've been freed. We've been delivered. And I pray every single time we come to a text that so clearly demonstrates our condition before Christ and our condition in Christ, that we would not become overly familiar and unaffected by how much the Lord has done for us. Listen to this man tell you how much he has done for you and remember how much God has done for you. He's had mercy on us. I see people grow up in church, and as they get older, they become less amazed by grace. I just think, how can that be? How do you get so familiar that you cease to be amazed by grace? I pray that as I continue to grow older, that I would become more and more amazed, and every day more and more amazed, saying, what great things God has done for me. And we too, like this man, say, God, I want to be with you. Can I go with you? I want to be with you. And Jesus, in essence, says, no, where I'm going, you can't come with me. And uh, if you're like me, I kind of go, that is terrible. I just want to be with you now. And what does Jesus say to us? He says the exact same thing that he says to the demon-possessed men who are demon-possessed no more. Go and tell everyone what great things the Lord has done for you. You can't be with me now in heaven. I will always be with you, so you're not going to have anything that you need that you won't have. You'll have it all. You'll have fellowship with the triune God as you obey, as you follow me. Go tell people what great things the Lord has done for you, and one day you'll be with me forever. Do you want to be with him? Do you want to be with Jesus? Do you, like this man, say, please let me go with you? You will if you understand what he's done for you. You won't if you don't understand what he's done for you. That's why we're always trying at this church to go after your heart. We're always trying to go after your heart to show you what God has done for you. 
Because if you understand his amazing love for you, you will love him back, right? If, if you know he first loved you, you will love him. If you understand his kindness, you will be led to repentance. And if you love him, then you will keep his commandments, right? That's why we try not to just focus on commandment keeping. We try to say, here's a command. If you're struggling with this, you're struggling with love. So let's preach on love and then let's go backwards. Let's work backwards to the command because if you love God, you're going to keep his commandments. This is what the Puritans used to call the expulsive power of a greater affection. Grow in your love for Jesus and it just throws every other love out. And so we aim at growing your love for Jesus. We aim at working through whatever your competing loves would be. Whatever your competing affections would be for Jesus, we want to go in and help you take those out, throw them away and show you that Jesus is better. What are the broken cisterns that you run to? We want to unmask those together as an altogether satisfying Christ shows you that those sins promise you satisfaction, but they leave you dead. So, how do we end this? I think we end it by saying there are really two groups of people here, and they show themselves in this passage. There's the people group that says, Jesus, please leave. I have everything I need, and you're just messing it up. Or you have people that say, Jesus, please stay. I want to be with you. Because everything I have is destroying me, and I need it all changed. You are my only hope. Yeah, pleading for him to leave might leave you more comfortable in the short term. Saying, please, just, you've made difficulties in my life, please leave. And yes, asking him to leave, if he leaves, does leave you more comfortable in the short term. You remain master of your life. You don't have to kill your will. You don't have to submit to anyone else. You don't have to lay open and bear before him. But in the long run, it will bring destruction. Yes, praying for him to stay is dangerous. Just ask these disciples. Okay, the first night, it's a storm. The second, it's demon possessed. Is life ever going to be normal when you walk with Jesus? No. Is he safe? No. Is he good? Yes. He is good. It's a dangerous prayer to stay with him, to ask him to stay, because he's not going to leave you as you are. He's going to drastically, radically change you. He says, you're one of my disciples now to this ex-demon-possessed man? Great. Can you please go and tell everybody? He instantly owns this man. He's going to radically change you, and sometimes that's painful. Most often it's painful. It's difficult as darkness is exposed to light. But in the end, you will be sitting at peace, clothed in his righteousness, not your own, and in your right mind, satisfied by the greatest of delights with joy overflowing. So rehearse the gospel every day and remind yourself every day it is much better, wiser to plead for Jesus to stay and for me to do everything I can to stay with him than to say, you know what, I want comfortable and you're messing my life up. Rehearse the gospel every day. That's what I wanted us to do as we end. We were lost captive in sin, held in death, in darkness. And we all thought we were doing just fine. We sang it already with uh, the song, Oh Great God. I was blinded by my sin. I didn't even have an ear to hear your voice. I didn't know the joys of heaven. And your spirit gave me life. We were in the exact same condition as these men. 
But Christ, rich in mercy, died for us, rose again from the dead, offering us life eternal, forgiveness from sins, and satisfaction if you would come and be with him. So let's say together this morning, if I have Jesus and nothing else, I have everything I need. I have everything I need. And if I have everything that this life has to offer and I don't have Jesus, I have nothing. Father, thank you for this amazing text. We want to have fresh amazement as we walk away from it, seeing ourselves. This is a picture of us dead in darkness, held captive in sin. And your spirit gave us life, opened up our eyes, showed us Jesus is more satisfying than anything in this world. And we walked away amazed. That first time our hearts grabbed hold of the gospel, we were amazed. May we always be amazed. May we grow in our amazement. May we grow in our understanding of the greatness of the things that you've done for us. And as we end our time together this morning, may Jesus be glorified as we stand amazed in his presence, blown away by grace. And we would not be like these townspeople who say, man, I have things I like, and I don't want Jesus to take those things away. And so therefore, Jesus, I'm asking you to leave. God, please, may we be those like Psalm 23 who say, the Lord is my shepherd, then I have everything I need. May we cling to him. May it be said of us what Paul said about himself, to live as Christ and to die and lose everything this life has to offer us, but to get more of Jesus is gain. It's hitting the jackpot. May we stand amazed even now as we rehearse the gospel through song. We pray for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus, our amazing Savior. Amen. Let's stand together.